Okay, we'll just get uh, started here in a minute. I'm going to bring some speakers in, and that always takes a, a minute or two with these Twitter spaces. So please just uh, bear with us here as we get this sorted. So. Just going through, and let's see, hold on. Still getting the hang of this. Uh, let's see, here we are here. Okay. Oh, there's Sarah, I see Sarah, good. And uh, okay, let's see what far. Yes, invite to speak. Okay, now, who else? Good. So the people who know they're speaking, um, they've come in as listeners. So uh, I sent you a, um, a invitation to speak, I believe. So please just uh, click accept uh, if you've received that. And if you haven't, then you can put in a request to speak by pressing the little microphone button at the bottom uh, left that says request. That's if you are. Hold on. And now I just have uh, one more to do. Uh, that's, oops, Amina. Okay. All right. So what have we got? I got one, two, three, four, five speakers, and I am not going to speak anymore. So um, speakers can now uh, unmute themselves and uh, and take it away. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. My name is Balkis Jara. Uh, I work at uh, Human Rights Watch's International Justice Program. And we are convening today on the heels of a conviction of a former Syrian intelligence officer for crimes against humanity by a German court. The conviction is a groundbreaking step toward justice for serious crimes in Syria, and of course, a meaningful moment for civilians who survived torture, sexual abuse, and other crimes in Syria's prisons. It's a big day that brought with it a rare piece of good news in the international justice world, and particularly in the Middle East and North Africa region. So thank you, very much for joining us and for your interest in this very important topic. I'm joined by two of my Human Rights Watch colleagues, Whitney Martina Nosahari from our international justice team, who was in Koblenz today to witness the verdict, and Sarah Kayali, our Syria researcher, we're also very honored to be joined by two amazing Syrian activists, Wafa Mustafa and Amina Sowan. So thank you for joining us. In our conversation today, we'll spend the time briefly reviewing where we stand as far as achieving justice for crimes in Syria, talk about an emerging phenomena where European countries like Germany have started to pursue criminal cases against people suspected of atrocities in Syria. And of course, talk about the trial in Koblenz that began in Germany in April, 2020. 
um, and we'll have a conversation with everyone that I've introduced. But to begin with, and just by way of background, as you know, war crimes have been committed on a vast scale in Syria. What's striking is the contrast between the gravity of the horrific crimes on the one hand and on the other hand, the absence of any meaningful way to provide fair criminal justice. This is deeply troubling, but it reflects the tough terrain that the justice track is on. While it's preferable to prosecute those responsible for serious crimes in the country where the abuses occurred, justice isn't always possible there. So we have other avenues for seeking redress that have emerged over the years. But most of those options are currently blocked for Syria, whether through an international court or in, in Syria. But despite that, what's become clear is that the expectations for justice are more pronounced than ever. The considerable work that's been done over a decade to document countless crimes, often at great risk, reflects those expectations. So where obstacles presented themselves, committed governments, civil society, survivors, and others have responded with out-of-the-box thinking, including by turning to other fora to push international criminal justice efforts forward, including in national courts in Europe. So judicial officials in several countries, including Sweden, France, and of course Germany, began some years ago investigating individuals alleged to have committed grave abuses in Syria. And this is possible because the laws in these countries recognize what we refer to as universal jurisdiction over certain serious crimes, allowing the authorities to pursue cases no matter where they were committed in the world and regardless of the nationality of the suspects or the victims. This legal tool has emerged as one of the main avenues to address mass atrocities in Syria. Now, a number of factors have fallen in place to facilitate criminal prosecutions using this principle. In particular, the recent refugee flow to Europe has increased prospects because victims, witnesses, and other types of evidence have become available in large numbers to police and prosecutors who couldn't have otherwise uh, had access to key information to build cases. Germany and Sweden, for example, received the highest number of Syrian asylum applications in Europe. And, and so it's not a coincidence that uh, officials in these countries have been the most active. Beyond that, there are other essential elements that have made it possible for these judicial actors to pursue criminal cases related to Syria. Number one, these countries like Germany have comprehensive legal frameworks that allow for the prosecution of these crimes. Two, they have dedicated staff within their law enforcement and prosecution services that are focused on exactly this, addressing serious crimes committed abroad. Um, and, of course, 
these authorities have also benefited from early professional and very comprehensive documentation of crimes in Syria, whether it's through the United Nations or through the very hard work of international and Syrian um, civil society. Um, and all these elements have yielded real results. And the case in Koblenz is part of a mounting effort to hold Syrian perpetrators accountable. And the, the trial is really the apex of where this push for justice has led, despite all the challenges. So I hope that helps set the scene a little bit. Um, and with that, I want to turn it over to my colleague, Whitney, who was in Koblenz today for the reading of the verdict. Um, so Whitney, you arrived yesterday in Koblenz. Can you describe the mood for us? What was it like outside the courtroom, inside the courtroom? Sure. Um, so as you said, Borkis, I traveled to Koblenz um, yesterday um, and I was in the courtroom to t today to um, witness the reading of the verdict. And we arrived um, in front of the courtroom at around 5.30 a.m. And there were already like around 15 people standing in front of the courtroom. People lined up as early as 3 a.m. in the morning to get a seat to hear the verdict against uh, Anwar R. Outside the courtroom, we had uh, Syrian activists, journalists, um, international media, national media talking to, to, um, to Syrians, to survivors about what, is going to, what, what was going to happen that day. Unfortunately, the court only provided 19 um, or 20, around 20 seats for people who were not accredited journalists. So not everybody who stood in line could actually enter the courtroom. Inside the courtroom, before the judges entered the room, the, the atmosphere was, was very intense. It was very silent. Um, at some parts, you could hear a pin drop. And um, everybody was really waiting for the judges to come in to finally announce announce the verdict. And after the judges announced that Anwar R um, was found guilty of crimes against humanity and sentenced to life in prison, there was a kind of a sigh in the in the in the room, a, like a sound of relief um, from from some of the people that that were inside the courtroom. In the first, during the first break, we we saw victims, survivors, and and joint plaintiffs like hugging, hugging each other, shaking, shaking their hands, and um, you got the sense that for for many, at least um, as an observer, of course, I can only say that this was a this was a moment of um, of victory. And Whitney, just to take a bit of a step back. Can you tell our listeners what is this case about? Who who are the accused? You mentioned Anwar R. There was another accused. Can you tell us a little bit about the case? Sure. So this case in Koblenz is about state-sponsored torture in serious prisons. This case, this trial started almost two years ago, and 
this case was against, or this trial um, was against two former Syrian um, um, intelligence officers, uh, Iyad A and Anwar R. They were accused of committing crimes against humanity in a notorious detention facility run by this um, Syrian secret service in Damascus. Um, the detention facility is also known as Branch 251. Iyad A was accused of aiding and abetting crimes against humanity, and he was convicted and um, sentenced to four and a half years uh, in prison because the court found that, you know, he 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 transported um, 30 peaceful protesters to the uh, to the prison facility in 2011. Anwar R, um, a higher ranking um, Syrian official, was today uh, convicted for crimes against humanity, uh, specifically 4,000 cases of torture, 27 murders, and cases of rape and sexual assault. Now, you've been following this trial for nearly two years. It started in April 2020. Can you share with us some of the moments that stood out to you during the case? The court sat, uh, I believe it was for 106 or 107 days. Correct. So there were 107 trial days or hearing days. And over 80 witnesses testified. There were several, you know, highlights from, from the trial, but I think the, the most important part are, of course, is, of course, the, the victims, the survivors that testified, that testified um, before the judges and um, were courageous to, enough, to, you know, to, to tell their stories and to be vulnerable. I mean, it's not an easy thing to sit there in the courtroom and, you know, and tell these, these stories of horrific abuse. And um, I, have, I have one memory that I would like to share um, of, of one witness who um, was arrested in, in Damascus, arbitrarily arrested in Damascus um, on the street. And he, he told his story to the, to the court. And by the end of the hearing, um, you know, he, he had to, he, he cried because he, he remembered his, his father who, um, who had passed away a couple of months ago. And um, it's, yeah, it's just this, you know, well, these, these personal stories that, that are just, um, yeah, heart- heartbreaking. And um, another, another highlight, um, important moment of this trial, I guess, was the, the evaluation of the so-called Caesar photos. The Caesar photos are um, a photographic um, documentation of um, of killed killed people uh, of, of people who were killed in detention facilities in in Syria. Um, so there was this one day when a forensic doctor. Um, came to court and testified about how he analyzed almost 27,000 of these Caesar photos, showing over 6,000 individuals who were tortured and killed in Syria's prisons. And this day was so meaningful that the, the judge, the presiding judge, 
um, on the day of EAD's verdict said in a side note, on a personal note, these I will never forget these pictures. I will never forget these images. And that's quite a huge deal for all the for all the German lawyers uh, listening. For a German judge, you know, to say something personal in a criminal trial, um, um, and this these these Caesar photos or the testimony of this forensic doctor also triggered a response by EIA in December um, um, last um, the, no, it's almost a year ago. Yeah, it triggered a, triggered a response by EIA. He wrote a letter to the court after the forensic doctor testified, saying um, that he basically, you know, had no other chance. He, he could not he could not leave the Secret Service early, and he he was sorry. He felt sorry, and that these pictures broke his heart. And um, I want to share one, maybe one final one final highlight from the from the hearing. There was a one witness who was a former um, government official who testified about mass graves outside of Damascus. And he told the court that it was his job to actually count the corpses that were transported onto a field on, on, tr um, on trucks. And he, he told us you know, very graphically how, how he would, they would open these trucks and there were thousands of dead people inside. And he told the court how he remembered the smell and that these pictures will never, you know, will never disappear. And it, I mean, you know, these two last highlights that I that I just stated just show or reflect the systematic nature um, of the abuses in, in Syria. Thanks, Whitney. Um, and can you tell us a little bit uh, what Anwar R. said if anything, in his defense during the course of the trial? Yeah, so Anwar R. never made any direct statements to the court. So he never, he never took the mic and spoke to the, to the judges. Anwar R. wrote over the past two years two letters to the court that were read out by by his lawyer and by a translator. In, the, in those letters, he denied all of the charges against him and um, did also not provide you know, any further information on the inner workings of the Syrian intelligence service. In the first letter, he, he said that he was not responsible for any torture that happened in, in Branch 251. And this first letter was really perceived by many as an insult you know claiming that that you you don't know about a to a torture basically and he was saying how he helped a lot of prisoners in branch 251 um but really just denying all the all all the charges or the um yeah the charges the second letter um, was read out in court on January 6th and this second letter looked a bit different than the first um it's, it's it's in this second letter, Anwar R said that you know he tried to help as many prisoners as possible. He thanked the court for the fair trial and apologized for not being able to help even more people. In it, in this letter, he also stated that he's going to accept the the verdict, the outcome um, of of this trial. 
So this is all that we that we heard from from Anwar R. And he's been sentenced to life in prison. Is there a possibility of appeal? And and how does that work in in German law? Yes, so he was sentenced um, to life in prison. Under German law, life in prison means, um, you know, like imprisonment for an indefinite period of time with the possibility of parole after 15 years. Um, Anwar R. has one week to um, submit a notice of appeal. After the written verdict is published, he then has up to three months to um, to provide the reasoning for for the appeal. And um, overall, in like in the German court system, especially in such high profile cases uh, that are pretty complicated, it takes it takes a, a while until you know the the higher courts and courts decide about this appeal. So this case is very significant for a number of reasons. And um, I mean, we believe that the German authorities should really be applauded for their effort in, in putting this trial together, particularly against the backdrop of all the challenges that um, they must have faced during the pandemic. Whitney, can you speak a little bit about what went well during the trial? and where you see there are some areas for improvement for future trials, not just in Germany, but in other countries uh, across Europe. What, what could they have done better? Yeah, so, I mean, this, this trial was a fair trial. This trial showed how, like, good cooperation between European war crimes units between European institutions, prosecutorial institutions can work. So something that we see is that that was also, you know, manifested itself in the trial is that it, the German authorities were really able to coordinate with other European institutions and make sure that other European witnesses, you know, testified, could, could testify in Koblenz. The, um, the prosecution worked very, very closely with uh, NGOs, um, Syrian NGOs, um, on collecting evidence, you know, finding, finding witnesses. This is, a, this is a good practice, you know, that, that, other, that other institutions in Europe can really, um, yeah, should, should really take a look at. And, you know, when we talk about what went well, we can we, we should also mention that Germany or German authorities have been investigating crimes in Syria since 2011, since the protests started. So there you can imagine that there's a there's a lot of evidence just in, 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 in on the desks of, of German authorities. And um you're absolutely right. I mean, this is uh, this is this trial of was was run really well um but of course you know there are areas of improvement um one area of improvement um concerns issues around accessibility and and outreach and we have seen that you know the over the past two years it was very hard for non-german speakers to adequately follow the developments of the trial this is because 
German to Arabic translation was only made available to parties to the trial after people involved in the trial filed a complaint to the to our constitutional court to the German constitutional court the court then allowed translation or interpretation for pre-accredited journalists which still excluded a lot of journalists arabic speaking journalists who did not um, did not apply for accreditation and this is a problem burkis because the information about the accreditation process was only published in german it was not translated in other languages the german the this court in koblenz did not provide enough information for people to be able to yeah know what is happening in the courtroom and if they did it mainly concerned logistical issues and these press releases or this information this information that they published was also only published in german so this is one huge point yeah that 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 german courts need to address when conducting these trials a second point some which which i would yeah say you know needs to needs improvement is is witness protection so we have seen that many many witnesses um cancelled their hearing because they were um and they they out of fear of their lives right and, and and their safety or that of their families given their role in the trial and at one point we had one witness and we we heard one witness in in Koblenz who said that Syrian intelligence officers visited his family and threatened them in Syria before he testified in Koblenz so we we look to the german courts to put in place measures that protect witnesses and make them feel safe testifying in court now whitney there is another case related to syria that is about to commence in frankfurt can you tell us a little bit about that and whether you think the court in frankfurt is drawing any lessons from what's taken place in koblenz So we have the second um state Syria state torture trial starting next week in Frankfurt against Ala M. He's accused of torturing people in a military hospital in Damascus. This trial is also going to be, you know, observed by various um NGOs and individuals and unfortunately Unfortunately the court in in Frankfurt did not draw any lessons from Koblenz. The court in Frankfurt will not provide any German to Arabic interpretation. Uh, the reason for that is that the defendant Ala M waived his right to interpretation um because he he um speaks German and he understands it well enough for the court to um yeah for for him to to not make use of an um of an interpreter and when asked whether they could provide this interpretation for the public gallery they cited financial reasons to not do so but that's not all the court which is not unusual for for the frankfurt court but still um not uh, not very uh, not not the not, not something that that we want to see like especially universal jurisdiction cases something else the court did is they restricted the note take the taking of notes in the public gallery 
So the court requests from everybody, like everyone who wants to take notes, to show a research interest. Now, some people, you know, might think, okay, well, that's no problem. You just you just show that you're interested in the trial. Well, that might work for Human Rights Watch or, or other organization, you know, that to show a, a research interest, but not necessarily for individuals who are not part of an NGO or, or of a research institution. So this is a, an additional barrier, which is just unnecessary and just does not do, do justice to to the significance of such trials. Thank you so much, Whitney, for sharing your insights and observations over um, a long period of time that you've been tracking this case. And you know the the case is significant not only because of the high rank of one of the suspects, which you mentioned, but also because it addressed the type of brutal criminality that's been emblematic of the conflict in Syria. Um, it, it, the trial has spoken not only to the guilt of the suspects, but it's really laid bare the workings of the system that were a part of, uh, that resulted in the torture and death of, of thousands in, in a systematic way and on a massive scale. The, the case also shows the importance of strategic litigation and documentation initiatives. A huge amount of information and possible evidence had been gathered that provided powerful assistance to the prosecution. Um, and we see that starting to bear fruit. In his testimony, um, one of the lead German investigators during the trial talked about the different sources of information that German police relied on. This included United Nations reports, private documentation efforts, but also NGO reports, including from uh, Human Rights Watch, which were written back in 2012 um, and were read out in court during the course of the trial. So I want to turn over at this point to our Syria researcher, Sara Kayali. Sara, can you tell us a little bit about these two reports and what, what we documented in those reports and how they relate to the trial? Um, absolutely. Thanks, Maltese. Um, and thank you all for, for your interest in this um, the the first report um, that was cited in 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 the Coburn's trial was a report called uh, Torture Archipelago. Um, it was published in 2012 uh, by Human Rights Watch, and it what it basically does is it's it's the first of its kind comprehensive mapping of the secret detention facilities that were used by the Syrian government to detain, disappear, and torture individuals. And one of the detention facilities that um, that was documented in the report was Al-Khatib branch or branch 251, um, where Anwar Raslan and Iyad A um, were, were working. Um, based on interviews with survivors, Human Rights Watch was able to identify the location and profile the torture methods. We were also able to find that the use of torture um, in by the Syrian government was widespread and systematic. And that sort of comprehensive overview was, was referenced and mentioned in the court. Um, the second report was actually based on the Caesar photos um, 
which was we had a report that was published in 2015, which also looked at and analyzed some of the photos um, that that Caesar had issued and and tracked um, tracked the families and, and and survivors and was able to to speak to them. And so that was another another uh, report that was mentioned um, within the trial in Koblenz. Um, as Whitney said, the, the Caesar photos provided visual and, and irrefutable evidence of what was happening inside the, de- the detention facilities. Previously, um, previously, although there was significant documentation of what was happening in Syria, there was very little uh, visual evidence. And, the, and those pictures really made it very difficult for anyone to deny what was happening in, in Syrian detention facilities. Um, I think it's it's sort of it's important to reflect on the fact that this this verdict comes at a time when after a decade of of conflict when to this day tens of thousands of people remain missing um have been detained um the Syrian government continues to arbitrarily arrest and torture and disappear individuals, including um, Syrian refugees who choose to return. Um, and we are, and Syria is facing devastating humanitarian and economic conditions and inability to access food, housing, healthcare. Um, so the verdict is really sort of a, a moment of, of, of hope against a very bleak picture. Um, Sara, I'll turn it over to you um, to bring Wafa and Amina in to the conversation. Thank you, Balqis. Um Wafa and Amina, thank you very much for for joining us today. Um, we would we would love to hear first from you. You've you've attended some of the sessions of the trials. You've you've spent two years tracking them. Um, you have been leading um, campaigning efforts to ensure that the issues of the missing and the disappeared in Syria um, do not disappear as people focus on the trial. Um, and I guess my, my first question to you both, um, and maybe Wafa will start with you, is how do you feel about this verdict? How do you feel about what's happened in, in the Koblenz trial? Hi, thank you, Sarah and everyone. Um, well, I mean, this is... Um... A tough question. I mean, I speak for myself. I, I mean, since the the moment I um, learned about the verdict, I, I've been trying to answer the question about how I feel about it, and I think I, I failed um, so far. I mean, I'm sure. What I'm sure of is that I have this. Um, I have mixed feelings. Um, I am fully aware of um, the importance of the trial um and for me i mean in the first place um, this importance comes from the fact that it validates not only um most importantly obviously the stories and the experiences of um the witnesses and the victims of anwar himself or um, of that a certain uh, security branch but it also validates um our stories um as syrians and for myself as a detainee, I mean, I was detained in another security branch, but it's still obviously it gives me hope that um, I might be able to one day 
um, have this agency over my own story and my own trauma and maybe confront those who um, detained me in 2011. Uh, but to be very honest, on the other hand, I am angry and sad and disappointed um, what, on a political level when it comes to the international community and governments because when this started two years ago, I went there to say that um, this is very important and this is a first step, but uh, it's not enough. And we need to remember that uh, detention is still ongoing in Syria. It's not in the past. It did not stop. Um, people are not uh, were not saved. Uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, detainees are still suffering inside detention centers if they are lucky enough um, to be alive by now. And this includes my own father, who today completed 3,117 days inside detention centers with us, his family, not even knowing if he's alive or not. So, I mean, I think that um, I am a bit disappointed that after two years of the start, um, since the start of the trial, and regardless of the fact that a legal system, a credible legal system like the German one, has proven that the war crimes happened and are still happening in Syria, and that the Assad regime is responsible uh, for these crimes, um, yeah, nothing has been done. We have not seen any... Um, actual comprehensive solutions. Um, actually, we have not seen any actions when it comes to uh, providing a comprehensive solution to the situation in Syria. And I fear, I said that many times, but I want to say, to say that one more time. I fear and I have this concern that um, these trials, which I support strongly, are used on a political level uh, by the international community and by politicians um, as an alternative to their failure um, to stop the massacre in Syria and to stop Assad regime and to deal with Russia's intervention in Syria and to actually start doing doing something and saving people um, who those who are lucky who would be lucky enough um, if we can still save them after all this time. Thank you, Afa. Um, before before I turn to Amina, I just wanted to follow up on on this particular point because because I agree with you in the sense that these trials are not in and of themselves the sort of the end the end goal of of the pursuit of justice and accountability. They're just one one avenue, and it cannot um, obfuscate what is happening on the ground in Syria today and the suffering that we, we continue to see. But I guess my question to you is, what do you think the international community should do next? I mean, I think they should do their work, what they are there for. Uh, what did the UN Security Council provide so far? Nothing, just empty speeches. I think they should uh, uh, um, start dealing with uh, the situation in Syria for what it is. They, I mean, I mean, it's it's crazy to the to the extent that um, uh, Assad regime, as a war criminal himself, who bumped his own people, who used chemical weapons against his own people, is not only not being prosecuted or investigated or punished or anything. He just 
won an election one more time to rule what is left uh, from Syria. So I think, yes, we've said it many times. We need the international community to do their job. They need to stop the atrocities in Syria. They need, first and foremost, they need to release to, to pressure Assad regime and all other actors in the country to first release all detainees in all prisons, second, stop the, the ongoing detention um, inside Syria, and third, prosecute all war criminals, starting with Assad himself. I couldn't agree more. Um... Amina, I, I wanted to turn to you and ask you um, about your sort of your feeling about the verdict and your experience of the trial. Um, hi, thank you, Sarah. Um, so to be honest, I'm sleep deprived now. I today this morning, me, Whitney, and everyone who was queuing in front of the courtroom in Copeland's at four a.m. We felt that we were the ones who were punished, not on murderous none. Uh, so I'm talking to you yet. Uh, from Copeland's, where earlier mm -hmm. today I attended um, uh, the session where um, Anwar Rustan was found guilty for aiding and abetting crimes against humanity inside Syria. And to be honest, I have mixed feelings as I heard Anwar Rustan's sentence, but I hope this is as a very minor step in a process of justice and accountability. It could be remarkable, it could be something that we could build on. But to be honest, as a Syrian, I felt, on the other hand, that my heart was wrenching. It's, this is not happening in our country. It's not happening or being spoken in our own language, the language of the victims, the survivors, and their families. And this is happening while the perpetrators are still in power and the, the whole country is suffering from uh, an economic collapse. People uh, are used by the regime um, to suffer more. It's just very difficult to look at this whole thing. We're looking at a, um, a court that is taking place in Germany. It feels like it's a German internal process. At the beginning, it, it was very difficult for me to understand why there's no interpretation in the sessions of, in, of uh, Al-Khatib trial. But then I understand this is, yeah, they're right. This is not about us. This is about trying a criminal who's um, dangerous to... Um, um, in front of the German law because he's dangerous to Germany in general. That makes me feel angry, to be honest. Um, still, I feel that, despite that, I feel we are excluded out of the process. I really want to take a moment and um, celebrate that the uh, relentless efforts of Syrian male and female survivors who stood in many sessions and uh, proposed their testimonies, told the really horrible and horrific details of their experiences um, with courage and suffered from a lot of re-traumatizations. These are the people that we sh should think most about today. I understand that the verdict is really an important step, but it's still, it still does not bring justice to the Syrian people. This is just the beginning, actually, of our struggle of a wider, more comprehensive accountability. True justice for us as Syrians can be achieved by actually at least a UN Security Council referral to the situation of Syria, to the International Criminal Court, but that has been blocked for years. I can't even count the, the Russian and Chinese vetoes that we've been facing. Um, 
it's really difficult. It's 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 today. It's really important to remember why we're mentioning that the court and the trial of Copeland was really important. That we're not supposed to forget that crimes against humanity that have come to light during the trial today. The the same trial where the judge this morning stood up and she. Um, started reading the verdict of Anwar Ruslan and then she started um, uh, laying out the reasoning. These crimes, the same crimes that she's referring to, are still being committed every day in Syria. Hundreds are um, still being arbitrarily detained, forcibly disappeared and tortured on mass scale simply only for peacefully expressing their opinions. It's... Uh, it's really important to know that lives can be saved. Um, over over 130,000 people are still can be saved. And um, the verdict can only serve as a wake-up call for all governments around the world of the urgent need to take action to save those still detained in Syria. It's, it's not going to work. Like, we're going to see... Uh, and we're, we're, Ruslan's verdict here, Iyad Larif's verdict there, and Ala Musa, etc. What we need actually here is a sustainable solution and a mass uh, to end the mass arbitrary detention in Syria. It's it's um, it's a huge responsibility that European states need to um, take. The same European states that took refugees who care about these causes, um, they need uh, also to recognize that the Syrian regime has not changed its ways and that Syria is not safe. We're talking like, it's just, I find it's really uh, troubling. We're talking about Germany. Germany has changed its um, policy um, around um, sending, um, uh, like lifting the ban on uh, um, sending back people back to Syria only last year. And it's uh, the same country that is holding the first state uh, trial on torture in Syria. So it's just kind of just build the connections of what going on here or there. Ultimately, I would say Anwar Ar is one of the hundreds of officials within the Syrian regime intelligence apparatus who are guilty of war crimes. Many of those who are still doing these crimes until now. And we need to look into more efforts into the chain command of convicting these people instead of focusing on like rare individuals that could be randomly found in Europe. Um, today's verdict is really a reminder, I want to say it again and again and again, that restoring Thai with Assad is not okay. This is a regime with blood on its hands, guilty of crimes against humanity. The international community should do everything in its power to hold the growing shift by the Arab states toward normalization or relations um, of relations with the Syrian regime. Um, Anwar R has got the fair trial, which is what for years, um, as Syrians, as Syrians' families um, of missing persons and as Syrian survivors, many of I know never had and might will not. And Amina, you work as, as, as an activist and a campaigner with the Syria campaign. Can you tell us a bit more about your work um, and how, how a trial like this intersects with your work and how you can use it? 
if at all? Um, sorry, the internet connection is not. Can you please repeat the question? Yeah, um, I was saying in, in your work as an activist and a, and a campaigner with the Syria campaign, um, can you tell us a bit more about your work and how you can use this verdict or this trial to advocate for the things you're trying to advocate for? Um, so th the Syria campaign is a ca uh, campaign and advocacy group and we run campaigns to support Syrian activists and Syrian um, uh, activist-led groups. We work with families of detainees and families of missing persons and survivors. Um, it's difficult to, to actually answer this question because um, this is an important incident that we have been or event that we've been following for the last two years. We've been honored to be able to, to accompany uh, uh, um, activists uh, like uh, women from Countless Freedoms or activists like Wafa to Copeland to come with them and stand uh, in the same uh, spot and demand for the freedom and um, emphasize all the demands that the Syrian families want. So. It's only, I think, a starting point for advocating that this is good. We're here. We are, we're observing it. Um, it's not as if it's going to be a tool because we're not uh, like a human rights documentation organization. What we do is different. We, we try to use um, creative interventions and storytelling to uh, bring the stories of Syrian uh, men and women uh, to the top of the agendas and... Uh, Couplings is a great moment to remind the world of what's going on. Like, Couplings is good. Uh, we appreciate this opportunity and we appreciate the support is being provided for the survivors and volunteers who participated in Couplings. But we are here um, as the Syria campaign, always in the background, and to support the great uh, men and women that we work with to, um, to be there and uh, to, in any means that we could support them. Thank you, Amina. I mean, the work of the Syria campaign is really incredible. Um, you've been at the forefront of, of a lot of the advocacy and, and behind the scenes, um, supporting a lot of the people um, that we work with and the people who, who really achieved results on the ground in a very difficult situation. Um, I wanted to turn to you, Wafa, and, and ask you about the I iconic image of you um, sitting outside of the Koblenz court with images of, of people who had been detained and disappeared. And I wanted to ask you, um, what were you hoping to achieve from that? And, and how did you feel doing that? Um, well, I mean, um, to be honest, when I first um, thought of um, it, it, it goes like this. Um, the, the trial kicked off um, in April. Uh, 2020 and I was home I live in Berlin and and um, I was uh, I was in a in a quite difficult um, emotional st emotional stage because I um, like weeks or days I guess before that I submitted my thesis and I was hoping for the past four years to for my dad to be uh, freed when I graduate from school um, and obviously that did not happen. So I was um, I was not feeling very well. Um, but um, it was that moment when I was um, I was reading the news and I was I just I was occupied by this idea that um, I wish my dad was here. 
um, I wish my dad was here so um, he could also witness this historic moment. But also I wish I wished he was here so I can actually talk to him about it um, because, you know, I was confused and it was all new. And I felt that I needed my dad, you know, to talk about it, to discuss things. Um, so at one point, I um, I guess I talked to Amina and um, others from the Syria campaign and Families for Freedom. And I said that I want to go to Copeland's and take my dad with me. And then, um, thanks to them, um, it worked that we also got photos of other people uh, with the consent of their families. Uh, not only those uh, detained by the Assad regime, but also others um, who were kidnapped and forcibly disappeared uh, by ISIS, uh, by uh, HTS and other uh, uh, actors in the country. And I think, I mean, I in the first place, I wanted to go there to to give my dad this chance to be part of this scene. You know, I mean many things many events happen and I the most thing that I feel is that um you know I wish my dad was here because he deserves to be part of this moment and this is why actually I went after Copeland's I like I went to many places taking uh, holding my dad's picture in this you know in this uh having this idea on mind but after I went there and after I sat there uh, with the help of the great people from the Syria campaign for the first time I knew that um, it was very important to add this, you know, this human level to the to the legal process that was uh, happening inside the courthouse. And I think it was mostly important to remind the whole world while everyone, you know, it was the moment where the whole world was talking about this moment. We're talking about Copeland's. We're talking about this trial. And I guess it was very important for me to use this moment and this opportunity to remind the whole world that um, that detention is still ongoing and that many people like my dad are still uh, disappeared and many families like mine are still suffering and they can be saved. And I think this remains my message and my uh, main aim after two years. Incredible. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is hopefully what we're all working towards. Um, um, my final question, really, before we wrap up to both of you. Um, so the Syria campaign actually did this incredible video um, on March 15th of, of 2021 for the 10 the year anniversary of the, I guess, the ten, yeah, the 10 year mark of the of the civil of the uprising um, and the video basically asks um, activists to imagine if if the world had listened to Syrians demands um, for democracy and dignity back in 2011. Um, it's a really it's a beautiful video and I encourage everyone to watch it if, if you haven't. Um, but my question to you um, Amina and Wafa is what does a just Syria look like to you? Um, we know the trial isn't enough, but what does what do you imagine a just Syria looking like? Um, maybe Amina, we'll we'll start with you. Well, that's a very difficult question. It's just um, we're, to be honest, tired of dreaming. Um, that brings me back to twenty eleven when we had a lot of hopes and we had a lot of uh, uh, high expectations. Um, 
Of course, um, just Syria would be like any democratic and freed country where people could freely be able to express their opinions. Just as a start, um, um, uh, a country that is not um, from the bottom to the top is corrupted and run by militias and intelligence forces where the military and intelligence forces are running the whole country. It just even starts here. It's just very difficult for us after 50 years of oppression, after 50 years of the Assad regime and the family ruling the country from imagining how Syria would look like. Like my father, he lived most of his life under the Assad regime. We can't even remember how Syria before the Assad family looked like. Um, we have dreams of just at least getting rid of the intelligence branch apparatus in Syria to start restructure the, the security um, system in Syria, restructure the, the country, have uh, the phase of transitional justice like every country or most of the countries who suffered from horrific conflicts but ours does not seem as if it's ending and it's just making every dream every wish every demand very difficult and this trial should have been in Syria and that one of the things that I could have imagined if uh, we were in a free and uh, peaceful Syria. Thank you. I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Wafa? Yeah, I mean, as Amina said, it's um, it's a very difficult question. And to be honest, I think um, it's it, it shows the extent of um, of despair and, and sadness um, that we are experiencing, that even such a question seems to be a luxury. You know, I mean, I... Uh, I'm, I think I, I, I have two points. First is that this trial helped me at least know what justice for Syria is not. I mean, I, I can say that after this trial, I'm, I, don't, I might not know what justice for Syria um, looks like, but I know for sure that justice for Syria is not a revenge. And I know for sure, and here I'm, I'm obviously speaking for myself, I know for sure that um, in a just Syria, I want for someone like Anwar Islan um, to not be tortured and I want for his family to not be deprived um, seeing him and knowing his fate. Um, and I think the other point is that, I mean, simply I can just say that for me now, a just Syria is a country where I don't lose my dad because he dared to speak up for um, his rights and ours is a country where I can just go to the streets uh, with my dad and protest uh, and show our demands without risking our lives. Thank you, Rafa. Um, there's really not much to add to that. I think it's um, I think it's 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 important. Um, it's important to keep these in mind, and I agree with you. It's a luxury to imagine what Syria would would look like if it was if it was a just Syria. Um, but that's that's exactly what we are working towards. Um, 
Thank you both for joining us. Um, thank you to our listeners. Um, I hope that this was an opportunity um, for you to learn a bit more about, about what happened today, um, the momentous uh, trial in Koblenz, and to understand how it fits into the wider Syrian context and why, while this is an in incredibly important and momentous um, decision, um, that it remains insufficient in the face of um, what Syrians have experienced in, in the last decade. Um, thank you.